Welcome to the Road Home Podcast with Ethan Nickturn. Join Ethan as he and his guests explore the Buddhist path as it relates to art, culture, activism, politics, Western psychology, and more. If you'd like to support Ethan's podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Ethan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Road Home Podcast. This is Ethan Nickturn, and I'm excited uh, for this episode uh, to be here with Chen Sing Han, who is uh, the author of the great new book, Be the Refuge, uh, Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists. And it's, it's already gotten a lot of really great reviews, um, including a starred review in uh, Publishers Weekly that I just wanted to read uh, as a way of introducing our guest. Um, in this impressive debut, former, uh, because now she's a writer full-time, which is something close to my heart, former Buddhist chaplain, Han offers an illuminating analysis of the intersection of race and privilege within American Buddhist communities. So um, thanks so much for being on the road home. Thank you so much, Ethan, for having me. It's a pleasure. I, I always um, ask people, and I, I always say I should get a better first question, but uh, to share, and somebody said it sounds like a comic book when I put it this way, but to share your origin story with, um, with the Buddhist path, with meditation, with, um, you know, however you got, uh, however you got to be a former Buddhist chaplain, you know, because <laughs> you didn't, you didn't grow up with it, right? You grew up in an atheistic right. house. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Yeah, um, one of my interviewees said you connect the dots in retrospect, which is kind of how it felt for me. So I wasn't raised in a Buddhist household. If anything, I inherited a kind of distrust of religion from my parents who are atheists and who grew up, you know, during the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Um, so I weave the story of my spiritual journey throughout the chapters of Be the Refuge. It's not entirely a straightforward or simple answer, but to focus kind of on origins, I guess. After high school, I was really quite burned out and I decided to take a gap year. And I was primarily based in Shanghai during that time, but I also took some time to travel south. So I went to meet some relatives in Southern China and also went to Hong Kong and Thailand and Nepal and Tibet. And I was just really struck by seeing Buddhism in so many different forms throughout these countries. I remember thinking, wow, if this religion can inspire so many devotees and can create such magnificent art and architecture, maybe there's something to it. And in college, I really started to explore Buddhism more in earnest. So both through reading and through visiting different Buddhist communities, primarily in the Bay Area. After graduation, I spent a summer in Cambodia with my partner at the time, now husband, um, and that was my introduction to Buddhist chaplaincy in a Cambodian context. I speak very poor. I don't speak Khmer, basically. So it was just a really humbling experience that made me really see the limits of my undergraduate education. And yeah, things sort of unfurled from there. So looking back, I now realize Buddhism is much more integrated in my life than I ever would have expected it to be. Mm -hmm. And so... Um... Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit more about like the, the origin ideas for this book for Be the Refuge. Like what, what was your, your thought process or what were the, the set of, I mean, I know that a book doesn't always come from one place. It's sort of a weird, weird developmental stage. A lot of the times that doesn't feel super linear, but um, 
you know, what, what were some of the formative ideas or experiences that led you to say, I, I, I need to get this all together and, and present this? Yeah, I'd say the origin of the book was really my own confusion and curiosity. So here I was in college, I was going to different sanghas. So at, you know, these insight meditation spaces or Zen centers, um, and keep in mind, this is, you know, about 15 years ago, I was not really seeing other people of color, other Asian Americans, very few young people as well, which I think is something you've spoken about yourself um, as someone who's raised in a Buddhist tradition. And then when I visited Cambodian or Vietnamese or Taiwanese or Chinese diasporic temples, um, there were also very few young adults. It kind of felt like there were toddlers and then there were grandmas and the age range in between wasn't very well represented. So I just started wondering, like, where are all the young adult Asian American Buddhists? Are they even out there? And if they are out there, would they be willing to talk to me and share a little bit about the experience of what it's like, particularly since they're both you know, religious and racial minorities within the U.S. Um, so also conveniently at the time, I was looking for a master's thesis topic. So I was doing a program at the Graduate Theological Union and the Institute of Buddhist Studies in Berkeley. And I thought, okay, I guess I'll start interviewing young adult Asian American Buddhists for my master's thesis. So I ended up interviewing 26 people in person. And people really had a lot to say. These interviews were an hour and a half to five and a half hours long. Um, and there were still more people who wanted to do an interview, but I couldn't meet them in person. So I adapted my interviews for an email format. And by the time I had 89 interviewees, I got the sinking feeling that this had to become a book and not just be buried in a master's thesis that no one would ever read. Wow. 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 Um, so, so it's interesting, like, so that, that, that missing group, right. So this group that is, that's missing in both, you know, communities, more sort of adoptive or newer, like insight communities, et cetera, um, where there's very few young people and very few Asian people and very few people of color in general. And then you go to uh, more Asian community uh, temples and it's the toddlers and, and the grandmas. So there's this quote early in your book, uh, from uh, that I was hoping to unpack a little bit. It's not It's not your quote, it's from the blogger who I've come across a little bit over the years, great name for a blogger, that the angry Asian Buddhist. Um, and the quote is, uh, you, you found out that that blogger is a he, right? So from, from him is the, the real issue for young Buddhists in the Asian American community is that there are very few Buddhist communities that they can go to without having to suppress part of their identity. So what, what um, can you unpack that a little bit for us? Absolutely. So I think for listeners who aren't familiar, just to talk a little bit about the Angry Asian Buddhist, it was a blog that was started in 2009 by someone named Aaron Lee, and he was inspired by the Angry Asian Man, the very popular blog by Tho Yu. Um, and Aaron was really interested in issues of race and representation in American Buddhism, and especially the marginalization of Asian Americans. He was probably one of the first people who looked at this 2008 Pew Forum statistic that the majority of American Buddhists were white converts. And he said, no way, like that can't be right. There's got to be some methodological flaw. Mm-hmm. And he was completely right. In 2012, the Pew Forum came around and said, actually, like we messed up in the previous survey. Um, and 
certainly, you know, Buddhists in America are a minority, about 1% of the population, but of those, more than two-thirds are of Asian heritage. So Asian American Buddhists are really the majority of American Buddhists. And what puzzled Aaron was when you look at the English language mainstream media, that's not really the impression you get when you look at who's publishing Buddhist books in English. That's not really the impression that you get. And you know, sadly, I'm speaking in the past tense because Aaron passed away in 2017 at the age of 34. Um, and he's a huge inspiration for this book. The title is, in fact, indebted to him. And his voice is really woven throughout the book. So for this quote in particular, it still resonates, I would say. Um, and I'd say, I think, more broadly for people of color, for anyone who identifies as part of a marginalized community, it's not an uncommon experience when you're moving between like a dominant culture and a non-dominant culture to sometimes feel that you can't fully express all of your cultural identities. And it's not like I think code switching is inherently bad, right? Like I'm not going to speak to my in-laws in Shanghainese and Mandarin like I do with my parents. That's not going to get very far. Um, but I would say that I think suffering really arises when people go to spiritual communities and they start to feel that you know, start to get cues that their identities are somehow seen as inferior, whether it's because they're not white or not heterosexual or not cisgender, able-bodied, wealthy, or whether they're not dressing the right way or talking the right way or wearing their hair right, et cetera. And I think it's particularly wounding in spiritual communities because people go there for a sense of solace and a sense of welcome and connection. So I think for Asian Americans specifically, um, thinking about kind of vertically, like there's often a generational gap or a language barrier with their elders and then thinking kind of more horizontally with their peers. You know, again, the American Buddhist mediascape is largely privileging white voices, so they're not really seeing themselves there. Asian Americans as a population are, are more likely to be Christian or non-religious than Buddhist. And I think some Asian American Buddhists even encounter other Asian Americans who might feel that they're practicing like a backwards religion. So there's that. And then you have, you know, just like mainstream culture more generally, which often tends to talk about race in a very black, white binary way. Mm -hmm. So Asian Americans, you know, have the mono minority trope to contend with ideas of like white adjacency, you know, when they see themselves in Hollywood, as Charles Yu hilariously points out, it's usually like they are doing Kung Fu or they are delivering food or there's a gong sound accompanying their entrance on the film or all of the above. And so I think all of these in aggregate can create a sense of alienation or a sense of just like not belonging. And I think Aaron's quote is really trying to ask, how do we build spaces where Asian American Buddhists, but also I think Buddhists writ large, feel comfortable expressing kind of the multifaceted totality of their different identities, spaces where they don't feel like they have to suppress a part of their identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, the, the, the term uh, code switching um, uh, is, is something I've, I've heard a lot before, and I, I've predominantly heard it from uh, friends who are, you know, first-generation Americans, like talking about their, their, how they talk to their parents versus how they talk to their friends or at, at work, et cetera. Um, you know, and, you know, as a straight white male in Buddhist communities, I experienced, you know, a much more minor, like I talked about this in my, in my first book that, you know, being, uh, cause the community I was part of was the Shambhala community and like got really interested towards the end of high school and college. But like, I knew that when I walked into the Shambhala center, there was, you know, I was the, this part has changed 
to a certain degree, but I was the youngest person there by, you know, 20, 20 years. So I'm not going to talk about a tribe called Quest, you know. So there was a little bit at least topic switching, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I can at least empathize with that that level of I have to be one person over here and uh, another person um, over there. I guess, you know, this, it just brings up such an, uh, uh, obviously there's the model minority, the the stereotyping that, you know, the, what media and culture does. Um, uh, One of the things that I've thought in terms of, uh, you know, and I'll be honest, like your book, and I mean, I've had some degree of awareness, but to really go into like, oh, the Asian, there's a huge Asian American Buddhist experience and it's, it's different. I mean, you know, when I've been working with inclusivity issues, you know, the thought in mind is often BIPOC, right? So it's, you know, it's um, obviously within the POC part, Asian people would be there. But the notion that that's the progenitors of all of these traditions, you know, we often think in terms of more like, you know, what is the, you know, Black or Latinx experience? Um, And so it's just, it's just interesting to see, you know, I won't say it was a complete blind spot, but what was at, at the very best, a, a partial blind spot for me of this. But it, it got me thinking um, that there's this interesting thing that ha- has happened in some white dominated um, uh, Buddhist communities, because part of what I've been thinking is if you want to make a safer space for people, you have to put the people have to walk in and see people who look like them uh, in the space and uh, have a, some kind of shared, you know, cultural experience. And I think even more than that, you have to see people who are, are in positions of power or leadership. So right. part of the irony in like the, the, the Zen communities and like the Tibetan communities is it's white people dominant historically who actually revere, you know, Asian men. Like, like there's, there's very few um, Soto or Rinzai Zen lineage holders who, who wouldn't have like total reverence for, you know, people like uh, Suzuki Roshi or Maizumi Roshi, right? It's like in Shambhala, we would like, you know, like Chogim Trungpa is a legend, you know? So there's, there's like this, this, uh, a complicated legend, but, a, but a legend, uh, nonetheless. And so there's this, um, there's this irony of sort of reverence for Asian men, but then uh, not having erasing, you know, the, the participation largely of Asian Americans in the community. Like, is that or like what what's going on? What do you think is going on there? Is it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a really complex dynamic. I think there are probably a lot of strands. Uh, a few things come to mind. So I write about this briefly in the book as well, but I think reading Jane Iramura's book, Virtual Orientalism, is really instructive. She's really kind of unpacking this figure of the oriental monk Mm. in American popular culture. Um, I'm sure I'm going to flip through the book and see if I can find it. Yeah. So I'm, it's in a chapter, chapter 11 called, which is titled privilege, but she writes about the most celebrated pupils of the wise Asian sage are his Anglo pupils, Mm. white students who rescue their master's religions from quote, the Asian masses that fail to appreciate the value of their inherited tradition. Mm. And so my commentary is ultimately white converts are the best Buddhists of all within this storyline, since they are the ones who carry the torch of a new and improved rational and modern enlightened Western Buddhism. 
So I think there's part of the picture, but I think it's also really important to remember the agency of the Asian teachers themselves. Um, James Cadillard speaks of a sort of strategic Occidentalism, which is a sort of mirror, I'd say, to Orientalism. But the idea that Asian teachers can take ideas about the West, about the Occident, and shape them to their own agendas, to their own means, whether that's perhaps presenting Buddhism in a way that seems very compatible with science or compatible with the Western mind. So yeah, it's a really interesting question. Like, why is it that Suzuki Roshi came to San Francisco to right, um, minister to Japanese Americans, but ultimately chose to minister primarily to white Buddhists? You know, why didn't Chogyam Trumpa spend more time teaching Tibetans? I think that perhaps historians and biographers could give us more insight. Um, since I'm neither, I probably shouldn't speculate mm -hmm. um, too much more about that. But I also think there are counterexamples. So I think of communities that were based on Asian founders, Asian teachers, and that are now quite diverse, whether it's Thich Nhat Hanh's communities or Sokaka Kai International or, you know, followers of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, of course, or, you know, I have many friends in Chogi Nima Rinpoche's mm -hmm. communities. So I think there's also um, that piece. And if I were to think about my interviewees, kind of across ethnic backgrounds and I can remember like a Tibetan interviewee, a Vietnamese one, a Sri Lankan one, even someone who's Indian, who's raised Hindu, but became interested in meditation and mindfulness. They talked about being really appreciative, actually, of their parents' understanding of religion insofar as it kind of taught them how to respect Buddhist teachers, but not fetishize them, not see them as these like perfect, infallible beings, not see um, Buddhism as this kind of politically disengaged or ahistorical or always peaceful, nonviolent mm. religion. Um, and there's just one quote that I really love by uh, one of my interviewees, Shuba, that I think really gets to this point. And this is in the chapter titled Anger in the book. Um, and Shuba said, you know, I want Asian American Buddhists to talk about the realities of the culture, what is good and what isn't in their experience. I think these voices will give some much needed reality to the discourse. Sometimes I read these articles about sexual abuse in some Buddhist or Eastern traditions in Tricycle and people dealing with this shock as if they didn't realize that abuse of power happens everywhere all the time. If Asian Americans were represented, I think the religion would take on more of the truth of every religion. People would have more stories, some positive, some negative, and Buddhism would take on less of this ideal view, less of a pedestal. Mm -hmm. So it's, I mean, just to, in terms of getting back to the writing process, because the, 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 the breadth of this book is really, uh, you know, uh, very uh, impressive, I have to say. And it's, as a writer, I think this is a very uh, hard kind of book. Like you, you didn't give yourself an easy, you could have just, you probably, my guess is could have gotten a book deal, you know, at, you know, especially in this era where publishers are looking to try to at least perform more, more inclusivity of saying like, here, here's my experience. You know, I'm, I'm going to write uh, like from my, you know, not that you would do it in an arrogant way, but your, your views of, you know, being an Asian American Buddhist, but you decided to have 26 going to 89 uh, interviews. You know, you, you're clearly very familiar with many different communities and like, so it's like a, it's a tapestry. It's like um, you're conducting. So, um, I guess like, what was your experience in talking to this many people and then trying to make it all, you know, uh, 
you said you didn't want to be a master's thesis that nobody reads, but then to try to make it all uh, make sense. Did you ever feel like maybe I should just be like, here's, here's my, here's my take on everything. And I could write 150 pages easier. <laughs> well, I think my take was so shaped by the people I was talking to that I don't know if I actually could have written the book. I will also say that I, the publishing journey of this book, which I talk about in the book itself was not easy. So, um, but people can read about that in the book, but the writing journey uh, for starters, I guess it was really fun and exciting to like meet so many people who wanted to talk to me. And especially like I realized in retrospect, it was really a gift to have people to like think with these issues, not just like think about these people. And it was a little less fun to transcribe all 26 of those interviews. I got carpal tunnel doing it, but I did spend a lot of time just like sitting with their words and sitting with these recordings and really just taking them seriously and trying to see, taking a bottom-up approach, I'd say, kind of a grassroots approach of like what themes are emerging and then how can I weave these themes together? It was definitely challenging. It took many years to write this book. Um, and right now I'm actually working on a memoir about Buddhist chaplaincy and grief and spiritual friendship. And it's a very different writing process. So it's, I guess in some ways smoother, but it also feels a bit more lonely. And I kind of miss having like these voices that challenge me, I suppose, or like that I disagree with because one of the hardest things was deciding, okay, wanting to center Asian American Buddhist voices, our voices, but this hour is actually in some ways fragmented and there's certainly overlap and there's certainly commonality, but there are a lot of differences under this tenuous umbrella of Asian American Buddhists. You know, there's disagreement, there's dissent. How do I make space for all of that and add enough of my own voice so that there's still some guidance for readers moving through because there are really an enormous number of voices that, yeah, that are present in this book. And it's still only just the tip of the iceberg of what is Buddhist Asian America. Yeah, well, and that's also, that brings up to sort of the next round of questions I want to ask that that sort of, because I, I really get the sense that you you didn't ever want to say something that you didn't have um, the experience for, you know, you, di you didn't want to like go out on, like th there's a lot of really good journalism, you know, here in the sense that like, you didn't want to say like, here's a hypothesis or here's how it seems and not have like, the the complicated you know counterweaving experiences to mm -hmm. to back that up so i guess that's the i mean i th i think this question and topic is something that i think the whole world is struggling with but like buddhist philosophy you know in terms of how the mind works you know that i've studied goes re gets really nuanced on specific experience versus generalizable experience and that's something like i've you know I've experienced just like, for example, you know, trying to talk to black friends, for example, you know, about Black Lives Matters and marginalization and oppression. It's like, you know, if if you talk to 10 of your black friends and I always say, well, the first thing is, do you have 10 black friends? You know, but but if you do, you might get some pieces of that that are shared experiences. But you're, you're always talking to 10 incredibly unique individuals, too. So I guess like. How does that work with trying to like thread the general cultural or experiential generalizations of of this group and and also like, oh, I am talking to somewhat dissonant or unique or, you know, subjective individuals at the same time. Did you did you have any tension kind of finding the themes that were generalizable? 
I mean, I think the themes really emerge from the interviews themselves. I think I tried to make it clear that this wasn't going to be a work of sociology. You know, this is not like Asian Americans, Buddhists are like this. I was actually inspired by sociologists of religion who'd um, written about Asian American Buddhists, usually like a specific ethnic group at a temple, whether like Korean or Taiwanese or Thai, for example. But they were saying, oh, we're not seeing a lot of young adults at the temple, which is kind of why I took a different approach when trying to find people. So it was a very um, decentralized, but also networked approach in terms of like just reaching out to people I knew or putting it online and seeing who was interested. In that sense, I was inspired by Sumi London Kim's Buddhist anthologies and the ways that she reached out to young Buddhists. Um, and, and in terms of this like specific and general, it, it's attention. And I think it's attention that is grappled with throughout the book. And I hope the book kind of opens up conversation. I'm not sure. There's like a Kirkus review that says the book is not the final answer. And I'm like, oh, I should certainly hope it's not the final answer. <laughs> like the point is to like open up dialogue and discussion. The point is to show that Asian American Buddhists in some ways have been very stereotyped and seen as this monolithic group. I argue the same is true for like Black Americans, Latinx, et cetera. Um, if anything, all the news about the elections and how people have been voting have really challenged us to take a step back and realize we can't look at these broad racial categories in any monolithic sense. So I see this book as kind of playing with what is Asian American Buddhist identity, what are the limits of it, what are the contradictions of it, but what are also the possibilities, right? And what are the places for connection and solidarity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that brings to, so, so with that sort of caveat uh, and qualifier of like, you know, we, we might, when we speak about what's generalizable, we might speak in overgeneralizations, like as, as somebody who's really uh, experienced a lot of different Buddhist communities, like what are, the, what are the main differences for you between Asian American Buddhist communities and more white dominant, you know, or more, you know, um, co-optive or adoptive um, Buddhist communities, like, like just to throw out some ideas of binaries that probably don't uh, speak to the full picture, like is one more ceremonial and religious or is one more kind of psychology based, um, you know, uh, is, is one more, um, uh, you know, uh, let's see, is, is, uh, yeah, I, I guess that's, I guess that's a good, is, is one more individualistic versus collect that that's something you hear sometimes that, that Asian cultures tend to be more collective oriented, which I'm starting to believe just in terms of how, how much better Asian countries are handling COVID um, <laughs> uh, that, that that's one stereotype or generalization that you hear that Asian culture is more collective oriented and white culture is more individualistic. So do any of those play out or any generalizations in terms of your experience of different American Buddhist communities? Um, yeah, for the collective individualistic piece, I've really enjoyed Gish Jen's book. It's um, a little, I think it came out maybe about 10 years ago now, but her book, Tiger Writing, where she really explores the nuances of that in a way that doesn't get reductive. I think I really appreciate that. I get a version of this question a lot, actually. And I guess my first thing, instinct is always to point out that in some ways the question replicates this two Buddhisms dichotomy that's really come to dominate the way we talk about American Buddhism. So this idea that you've got Asian immigrants and they're kind of in this ethnic enclave and maybe they're like more devotional or they're interested in ceremonies and ritual and 
Uh, maybe they're more superstitious even, you know, it, that that kind of can devolve into some not so um, positive tropes. And on the other hand, you have white comrade Buddhists and they're more likely to meditate and be more rational, etc. And I guess for me and for my interviewees as well, I think we just would keep coming up to the limits of this kind of bifurcation of American Buddhism. Like, what about Asian American converts? What about our white Buddhist friends who feel very devotional in their practice? Um, what about, you know, the Sri Lankan interviewee whose dad is like, has a very psychological orientation toward Buddhism. It becomes really hard to generalize. And I think there's even a questioning of some of these dichotomies themselves. Like, why don't we talk about meditation as a ritual or a ceremony? Like you could argue doctrinally in Zen, it's just a ritual, right? Um, so there are these complex questions, not to mention, of course, that we're leaving out all our, you know, Black, Indigenous, mixed race, uh, Latinx friends. So it's sort of like, where do we fit into this uh, two Buddhisms bifurcation? I was just listening to um, Rhonda McGee, who I think you've had on this podcast before, in a conversation with Bikunalio, and they were talking about, you know, Buddhism really actually encourages to think beyond these sorts of dichotomies and bifurcations. And I'm hoping my book can push us towards that direction. So whether it's thinking more like generationally or like intersectionally or in a more culturally engaged way, in a more historically engaged way, that's what I hope that the book can move us toward, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, there's there's nothing about your book that I saw as as reductive thinking. Um, <laughs> and I guess I would just add one piece. One major difference I do see is just simply in terms of language. But again, it's hard to generalize. Like my husband, who is white but fluent in Thai and is a scholar of Southeast Asian Buddhism, like knows a lot more of what's going on when we visit Thai and Thai diasporic temples than I do, for example. And often second generation Asian American Buddhists, you know, don't entirely feel at ease with their parents or their grandparents' temples because there is this language barrier. So I actually think language is a big piece of it. But again, you can't really just say, oh, all Asians, this, all white Buddhists, this, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's also interesting, uh, one, one point that I make in my book in terms of just the psychology versus religious thing is like, I, I feel like that's a poorly framed question for anyone's Buddhist practice. Like, um, obviously when you're doing a chaplaincy program, right, there's the notion of like, this is spiritual or religious role. Um, and I want to say this kind of leading in, into my next question for you, but, and then, you know, a lot of the thought is that then you have psychology and you have neuroscience and evolutionary biology. And these things are starting to be more and more in conversation with, um, with Buddhist thought and Buddhist practice. Um, but you know, the notion of, is it either, you know, religious or, uh, you know, scientific is, re is really coming out of Western European age of enlightenment, like, like Buddhism actually predates even the split between religious and secular. So it, it's, it's neither, you know, right. um, so that that's hard. Cause it's like, uh, it's hard to answer a question that, that the structure of the question is, you know, is already flawed, which I think you're you're really br bringing up the structure of a lot of these questions and where, um, where because of the structure, th certain groups of people have been um, erased. You know, so that that brings me to the mindfulness movement, which I would say is this real push to secularize and broaden the 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 wellness appeal of um, Buddhist thought. 
Um, so uh, like in Whole Foods, right? You talk, like this is the experience I have. It's interesting, like who makes the cover of a magazine meditating on the, I mean, part of me is like, I'm, I'm happy there's a meditator on the cover of a magazine, but it's not always only a, uh, I, I've noticed this and I've joked, it's, it's always a blonde person. It's not, it's not just a white, it's like, <laughs> it's like, too. yes, 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 yes. So I, I'm just wondering, like, this may be something of an obvious question, but how does the mindfulness movement uh, operate in relationship to the erasure of Asian American Buddhists for you? Um, is it, is, is that making it worse? Is it just this other thing? Some people think that popularizes some avenue into this way of, of thinking and practicing about the world. So ultimately it's good for all Buddhist communities because at least it kind of gives people a uh, introduction that they can find. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a complex topic. Um, I guess I would say that I haven't seen too many examples of the mindfulness movement elevating the voices of Asian American Buddhists. So I'll say that first. Um, yeah, if anything, I've certainly heard mindfulness teachers who said things like, oh, you know, white Buddhists who studied with Asian masters brought Buddhism to the U.S. in the 1960s, which, of course, erases the multi-generational Asian American Buddhists who have been in this country, who brought Buddhism to this country in the 1800s. Mm. Um, and I guess it just brings up more questions for me, I think, like when mindfulness is presented in a way that's devoid of culture, when it's seen as some kind of like a historical unchanging practice, what are the ramifications for practitioners who, you know, none of us are like able to escape the ways we're shaped by culture and by identity, by history. Um, and yeah, I also wonder about the sort of internetification of mindfulness, the way that mindfulness apps really, I guess, valorize a practice that can be really hyper-individual to mm. speak back to our individual collective point. Um, yeah, and I guess, yeah, what are the implications when Mindfulness is part of a, you know, $4 trillion wellness industry in some mm. ways when it's commercially viable to have retreats and trainings and apps. And I am happy, genuinely happy that these, you know, provide benefit to people and are of support to people. But I also wonder about what are the implications even structurally as well as, you know, religiously or doctrinally for American Buddhism when, you know, Asian American Buddhists, I think, or Asian American Buddhism is not something that can be easily packaged and sold. It's mm. like, like culture, culture, like the people who created is always like messy and complex and not that easily distillable. And I guess this question also makes me think about kind of there's stereotypes about Buddhism in the U S that apply for Buddhists of all racial backgrounds. I'd say like Buddhism is generally seen as very peaceful. So it sort of has a, positive reception in the U.S. It certainly hasn't been demonized the way Islam has in this country, mm -hmm. for example. But still within that, you know, racial dynamics are at play. I mean, I think Angry Asian Buddhist is a brilliant title. And he knew that it would sound different if it was Angry Black Buddhist or Angry White Buddhist, right? I have a friend who has Buddhist family members, um, but he doesn't openly identify as Buddhist. And he said, to me once, you know, it is a lot sexier to be Buddhist in this country if you are not Asian. Mm. And that really struck me. I thought about, you know, this 
oriental monk figure, some kind of like Yoda-esque, you know, it's cute, but wise and kind of mysterious and also quite emasculated. Or you get this superstitious immigrant trope, oh, they're just worshipping idols or something. Um, one can understand why Asian Americans might not want to publicly identify as Buddhists. And that was the case for some of my interviewees as well, who were scared of being mocked or scorned or worse. Um, I have this Google alert for Asian American plus Buddhists and like pretty much nothing ever comes through. But recently all it's shown is it's the news about the vandalization of Buddhist temples in mm. Southern California. Mm. And it's as some of my interviews pointed out, it is a risk for many Asian Americans to be openly Buddhist, to speak about speak out about Buddhism. It is a privilege for some Buddhists to be able to speak about Buddhism, you know, make a living teaching mindfulness, that kind of thing, and without the same kinds of ramifications or repercussions. So yeah, I guess to circle back to your question, you know, I don't want to come across as saying like, oh my gosh, we shouldn't have mindfulness. But I think that it's more a contemplation about you know, when any single spiritual movement or practice is kind of advertised as the one or the best or the only, and sometimes at the denigration of other forms, what are the implications of that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, what do, do you see uh, within all these themes and, and your knowledge of the Asian American and white dominant? And, you know, there's one of the things that maybe it's not happening uh, enough uh, or fast enough, but just the last few years, uh, I mean, I think an ironic gift of the Trump era within certain uh, American Buddhist communities is at least the rise and elevation of certain BIPOC voices, which I think is is really wonderful. D do you have a clear sense of like what future American Buddhism might look like? You, you talk about a pan-ethnic, pan-sectarian. I've often thought that just pan-sectarian will happen, that it won't be this, because, you know, when you told somebody in Asia what type of Buddhism you study, you're basically just telling them where you were from, right? Mm -hmm. It's not like you could go to the Insight Center in, in Lhasa, you know? Um, so uh, that notion that you can actually grab, you know, and, and there's a lot of teachers from different uh, traditions who are starting to be more and more in touch with each other and students who are you know, not just studying one or the other, that, that's starting to happen. So um, where is all this going? Is it, I mean, are there going to be distinctive communities and lineages? Do, do you hope it all mixes together or what does what a good future look like maybe for, for American Buddhism? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I'm definitely not advocating like one Buddhism to rule them all. So I think that <laughs> there's a lot of room for people who are grounded in specific tradition, but I think there are increasingly around the globe, right? People who practice in multiple tr traditions and there's not, that's not necessarily like American exceptionalism is sort of nice to believe in, but I mean, when I'm in Thailand and I see the Guanyin and the Theravada Buddhist temples or my friends who will just happily go to the Catholic temple as well, because, you know, it's all kind of cultivating merit and they're very openly religious or going to Vietnam and there's people practicing Mahayana and Theravada separately or even together or among my interviewees, a lot of mixing. So I think you're right. I mean, that's already happening. It's just reflecting a kind of plurality that's already happening in the world. And I guess my hope is that Buddhists will be a lot like the interviewees that I spoke with 
to kind of approach all these issues with a curiosity and also humility. I think there's a real eagerness to learn from Buddhists across lines of ethnic difference or racial difference or sectarian difference. And I guess what gives me hope, it's really hard for me to like say what the future will look like. I feel like I certainly didn't predict COVID in 2020. So I mean, how are any of us going to know what the future looks like? But I guess what does give me hope is people, the artists, the activists, the teachers, the caregivers right now who are engaging in, broadly speaking, humanistic inquiry. And to me, Buddhism is in many ways a very human-centered religion insofar as it really celebrates the human experience, which is one of suffering, but also joy. And because of that, we have the potential for liberation. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like also you you could maybe write uh, along with your your memoir, which I, I look forward to. You you could write the Dharma of Lord of the Rings if uh, <laughs> if you wanted to. <laughs> I'd be more up your alley, but <laughs> the Dharma of the Princess yeah. Bride. <laughs> I'm I'm not uh, yeah yeah I'm not really a Lord of the Rings fan. It's it's too um it's it's talk about white centered you know um we, we could we could get into that but it's <laughs> it's it's too uh, Manichaean and dichotomous in its view of the world for me. <laughs> Um, uh, more of a Star Wars fan, although you could say the same things about everything I just said about Star <laughs> Wars. <laughs> and I do like Yoda, you know. Uh, anyway. How can you not like baby Yoda? Just irresistible. Yeah, true. irresistible. <laughs> and designed to be so. Um, well, I think that's, sorry for that uh, aside, but um, yeah, so I'm I'm here talking with author uh, Chen Sing Han, who uh, has written this really great new book, "Be the Refuge: Raising the Voices of Asian American Buddhists." It's out uh, January 26. Um, and Chen Sing Han, C H E N X I N G H A N dot com is her website. So please do go um, check her out. And thank you, thank you so much for uh, speaking to me. It's really it's really awesome to to hear the um, the the depth and breadth of of your knowledge on this topic, and feel like um, I have a lot to think about in terms of my blind spots for sure. Thank you, Ethan. It's been really fun, and thanks for your really thoughtful questions. So, um, for the Road Home Podcast, this is Ethan Nickturn, and we'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>